Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 255th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Cody Garrett. Cody is the founder of Measure Twice Financial, an independent RIA based in Houston, Texas, who's quickly managed to grow to nearly $150,000 in annualized financial planning fees in barely more than six months since launching. What's unique about Cody, though, is his advice-only approach to financial planning, where clients don't have the obligation, expectation, or even the option to have their investments managed by Cody's firm, which has allowed him to quickly attract a waiting list of clients who may be do-it-yourselfers when it comes to portfolio implementation, but are not learn-it-yourselfers and are happy to pay Cody for more personalized education. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Cody first came to the advice-only model after talking to a frustrated prospect who had interviewed 10 fee-only advisors looking for someone who would just charge him for financial advice and couldn't find anyone who wouldn't do the plan without an expectation of also managing his money. How Cody has managed to find a niche with a certain segment of do-it-yourself consumers who are quite ready and willing to pay a financial planning fees for advice and education and how Cody has been able to quickly generate a steady pipeline of new clients by immersing himself into Facebook do-it-yourself fire communities for extreme early retirees. We also talk about what Cody actually does in his financial planning process for DIY clients, the three-month, three-meeting process for which he charges his $6,400 planning fee, why Cody actually eschews using traditional financial planning software in order to earn his planning fees, and the 25-plus one-pagers that Cody provides as his educational financial planning deliverables to his clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Cody shares how building an advice-only model has allowed him to build the ideal practice for his own lifestyle. The way he's quickly systematized his process to the point that he doesn't need to work more than 10 hours per week to generate nearly $150,000 per year in financial planning fees. How his lean approach to building his practice with high-value clients means that Cody's able to take home more than 90% of his gross revenue after all business expenses. And what Cody's looking to do with the rest of his time in giving back to the advisor and consumer communities he serves now that he's been able to achieve his lifestyle goals. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Cody Garrett. Welcome, Cody Garrett, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate your kind invitation. And you have an awesome team there at the, uh, the Nerds Eye View, for sure. Awesome. appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate you coming out to, to join us for the podcast today. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the discussion and, and a, a conversation about what I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see is, as I was going to say, basically a, a new business model emerging in the advisor space. And I, I guess as, as part of our conversation, we may even talk about whether whether it's new or not new or what's different. Mm-hmm. But the the rise of what I'm seeing more and more of as advice-only firms, you know, if, if advisory firms have positioned themselves as advice-only, and I kind of think of it relative to the growth of fee-only, which you know was was kind of defined in a very specific way around we only do fees. It was meant to contrast with firms that that don't uh, get compensated through commissions as a way to talk about you know differences in compensation, differences in conflicts of interest, differences in standards of care. 
And, and now I'm seeing this rise of firms that are starting to market and hold themselves out as advice only with, again, kind of a, a very specific language that is meant to define a, a certain characteristic of the firm of, of like, you know, we don't even do the portfolio management. Like it is just advice. It is advice only. And I know you, you are, you are living this model, having uh, launched relatively recently into an advice only firm and had very rapid growth in an advice only firm. And so I'm, I just, I'm, I'm looking forward today to talking about this kind of emerging trend of, of what does it mean to be an advice only firm? Well, I really appreciate you bringing me on to talk about this stuff. I'm super passionate and energetic about it. I get on Zoom calls with other planners like multiple multiple times a week, just saying like, how does this actually work in real life? But it, it's funny how the kind of the tranches of movement through the industry have been in terms of fee structure. I know we really have, there's a lot of debates, unfortunately, about compensation models, but the kind of the movement has certainly gone from, you know, before I was even in the industry, I Four years ago, I didn't know what, a, what an IRA was. So that kind of gives you a glimpse of how, how new I still am to all of this. But the move from kind of compensations to you know, what people defined as kind of non-transparent fees, like they don't really know what they're paying, to fee only. And then that kind of, and then people went kind of a step further and went, oh, I'm going to be like, like flat fee. So like not tied to like the, the compensation is not tied to like to the actual you know, investments and the, things that, the thing that's out of our control, which is you know, m- market performance. And then it, now it's kind of going one step further than a flat fee and saying, you know, a lot of consumers, a lot of families want fee-only financial planning without the expectation, obligation, or even the option to have their investment managed. And really what that means is they want as much transparency. I know there's, there's the big debates right now about, is, is there such thing as no conflict of interest, right? And I think, on, at least on the compensation model side, this is what consumers are seeing as like the, the most transparent, is saying, hey, you know... I, I pay you, you give me financial education, you know, financial advice, and that's it. Like, no, there's no add-ons, there's no commissions, there's no... And, and, and I think whether you're doing the right thing for clients or not, if, if, if a family feels like doing financial planning is just a loss leader or a way to move assets, they're, they're going to feel like they're not getting your best, the best value out of you as a planner. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting evolution to me because as, as you said, you know, you, like we've seen the growth of advisors with various flat fee models, right? Uh, uh, flat project fees, monthly subscription fees, annual retainer fees. You know, I, like I, I broadly call that f- category fee-for-service firms. Mm. Like we, we, we charge a fee, we provide some service. So it's not tied to AUM. It's not tied to to a, a, a sale of or impensation of a particular product. Like it's just a fee for the actual, the, the service work or mm. the advice that's tied to the service. Right. And you know, just if you look broadly at benchmarking studies, I mean, we see this directly within advice pay as well. Like there's a really rapid explosive growth happening right now in in fee for service financial planning but but in part like it's got really really high growth rates because it was a really small denominator like just the overwhelming majority of firms have been charging AUM fees and most firms i find that are going into charging planning fees like it's an add-on it's an option mm-hmm. it's an extension a it's uh right. you know well well uh, you know, we want to work with some younger next generation clients who don't meet our investment mm-hmm. minimums, but we want to have a, a, a more diversified clientele. So we're going to launch this monthly subscription thing to work with younger Henry, high earner, not rich yet, younger Henry <laughs> clients. Right. And and like, I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I, I get it, right? Just charging when you've only been in AUM world, it kind of, well, it literally limits you to only clients who have assets to manage. So you want to get a broader client base. You want to get a younger client base. You can add it on. If you look at a lot of the industry benchmarking studies, you'll see like, you know, AUM centric firms, but they're doing 10% of their revenue in planning fees or 20% or 30%. And, and not necessarily growing a ton as though it's going to be 
100% planning fees and their AM is going to go away. They're just they're doing it as diversified revenue models. Well, and it's funny. I just just came to my head right now is what most firms are doing in terms of adding like like flat fee planning is they see it as kind of like a side hustle. They're like, hey, like we got AUM kind of like that machine is going. But like, I want to, you know, they understand diversification, right? We understand diversification. Yeah. So they go, let's add an additional revenue source. But again, it's very much, even the attitude toward it is very much like side hustle. Like this isn't our main thing. So we're not necessarily going to invest mm-hmm. a lot of time or people as well into that part of the business. And and what strikes me about this whole dynamic, I mean, look, you know, I, I got nothing against firms that are just trying to do more planning work and charge for their planning fees. You know, I, I always worry a little bit of just, you know, like if you're going to do it, make sure you're in on you're you're all in on it enough that you're really going to deliver the value for the fees that you're charging. Otherwise, you're going to roll it out and clients are going to pay for it. But to me, there's something very distinct about seeing the growth of firms that are saying like I'm going to start charging for planning or like I'm going to have I'm going to have two fees. I'm going to have an investment management fee for the pure investment management and the planning fee for the planning work. And maybe even I'll have a slightly lower AUM fee because I'm just charging the AUM fee for the investments and just charging the planning fee for the for the planning work. So there, there's all of these blended fee models that are emerging, but there's something very, very distinct and different when you start talking about advice only, right? That that only word <laughs> is super powerful in in defining position and defining what the firm does, what the firm doesn't do, and and the focus that creates. Right? You know, if, I mean, if you look broadly at the industry, just mathematically, the majority of advisors are fee and commission. You know, just the, the majority of advisors are not in RIAs. They're in some kind of broker dealer or insurance company that has some level of commission compensation, but very, very few are a hundred percent commissions now. You know, just mm-hmm. overall majority of advisors and broker dealers are hybrid, they're duly registered as broker and RIA. And so, you know, the majority of advisors now are fee and commission in some varying percentages. But then there's this segment that's fee only, that's marketed around fee only, and that's just for better or worse has tried to create differentiation for themselves of saying, but it's different. When I don't even have a motive, I don't even have a desire. When I don't even have the option to sell you a product for a commission, because I like I literally don't have the brokerage or the insurance license to sell you the thing, and it creates, I think, a certain level of 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 comfort of psychological safety for clients. It you know we talk about it in terms of conflicts of interest, which is true. I mean, just there are some conflicts of interest uh, that crop up. I think just even in a more pure level, just clients can tell when other when you've got some other dog in the hunt. Or not, just it's because it, it's hard for us to hide it. If at the end of the day, you know, your bread and butter business is the thing that you sell and get the commission on, and the and the planning work is the loss leader. At some point, they notice, and if they notice early enough, they may not even want to engage. And you know, and I think the same thing happens to varying extents in the AUM world. And that I, I think this the, there's this interesting distinction that starts getting created for advice only firms, just to say like, well. You know, I think as you said, like the, uh, no expectation, no obligation, and no option to have your investments managed. That you know, for the client that just says, like, I really just want to pay someone for the advice. I don't want to do it because then they're going to pitch me for the assets at the end. I just really want to pay someone for the advice. That to say we're an advice only firm is really appealing for that segment of clientele. Well, and it's it's funny how the language works. So I mean, I, I've heard so many times people say, oh. Like people don't think that fee only and AUM like know each other, right? <laughs> They're just like, oh wait, that like how does that make sense? Because I think people think that fee only is synonymous with flat fee, and there's enough confusion right there. But the reason that I shifted entirely to actually launching this firm, I received a call that was very distinct. It's kind of the that was the pivot for me. I received a call from someone who they said they had they had interviewed over ten fee only 
CFP, financial planners, and none of them would offer financial planning without the expectation to manage his money. And he was so frustrated. He's like, I mean, I I thought this was all about helping people make financial decisions, right? I mean, like, can't I just like sit down with you and like, so the firms that he specifically interviewed, I know there are a lot of firms that are saying, they're listening now and saying, oh, well, like, I mean, we would have taken, you know, that, that, that family on, but there's a certain level of transparency that's missing. And it's also very difficult for, you know, this is changing too, but it's very difficult for families to find what they're looking for on the different search platforms online, whether it's find somebody in your local area versus somebody who really aligns with your, not just your niche in terms of, you know, like, you know, if you're, if you're a married couple, if you're young, you know, the Henry's, but also if you're just have a certain philosophy about money, right? So I specifically work with DIY investors who want to be financially independent within the next five years, right? Financial independence is actually its own very much like a community that revolves around a lot of philosophies, not just investment related, but really about aligning our money with our values. So it's very difficult for families to find the right quote unquote niche for themselves, like using more traditional tools. And a quick thing I wanted to say is it's very, sometimes it's hard to describe um, what advice only is without using just negative terminology. Like what, you know, describing what advice only is without saying without and you know, what we don't do. So the, what I tell um, families is my role as a, uh, as a, as a financial planner is to provide personalized financial education to, to really empower them to make and implement their own well-informed decisions. So the product that I actually provide, you know, if we're talking about products, selling something, I, I kind of say with a smile, like my, the product that I sell is clarity and confidence. Mm-hmm. And um, families really go, oh, like there's not going to be the, oh yeah. And by the way, here's a, at the end of the conversation, they know very clearly. And, and it's, it's also just nice you know, to, to send them the ADV. The types of clients I work with, they read it probably twice. You know, they look at the ADV and they're like, let me get this right. Like just making sure. Um, so the financial independence community, very specifically, they understand, they, they, they very much go beyond the basics. So they understand compound interest. And I've heard this conversation a lot of saying, we understand compound interest. We also understand, and there's graphs to show all this stuff. They're not looking at necessarily the financial advisor white papers, part of the value, but they're looking at what is 1% over time due to my portfolio. And I specifically work with people who are in their you know, 30s and 40s who are planning to retire early and are looking at some of them really just going after that kind of the, the 4% rule of saying, you know, if I'm taking, if I'm doing the 4% rule, that becomes the 5% rule, doesn't it? So they're very kind of what you, you know, say is woke <laughs> to the compensation <laughs> models. But I mean, the, there's still an underlying core of that, right? And I, I can, I can envision all the, all the advisors listening. They're like, yeah, until they manage their portfolio and lose 40% in the bear market because they freak out and panic at the bottom. And then all of a sudden that 1% fee ain't going to seem so bad anymore. That. Right there, there's, yeah. I mean, we all get the the impact of the cost of the advisory fee in the absence of any value. Like I did something useful, like keeping you from selling out of the bear market at the bottom. So, I mean, like, how do you distinguish that? I mean, just are you know? I feel like there's a segment of advisors that would basically say, yeah, go ahead and do your fire thing for a while, and after you freak out at the bottom of a bear market and lose thirty or forty percent because you sold at the wrong time, you can call me back next time. I think uh, the key the key differentiator in how advice only planning works is it's very much education driven, right? So, a, a kind of a t- typical advisor relationship. There's a lot going off going on in the back end, right? In terms of the the client probably doesn't. You might show them reports, but they don't really know what you do in terms of like how you. They know you're doing. You you mentioned to them, I'm doing tax gain loss harvesting. You can even teach them like what it is, but they don't. 
I mean, unless you show them, hey, this is how I review your adjusted cost basis, right? This is how I, you know, add up all your different sources of income. This is how I calculate your Roth conversion strategy. The families I work with, nothing's hidden. So for example, all, you know, in a, the traditional office, you'd be sitting across the table from a client and you'd have your kind of your legal, your legal pad, like taking notes and they don't really know what you're writing down. So since I do 100% remote, remote planning, I screen share my document with them. So as I'm typing, they see exactly what I'm typing and they can go, oh, wow. Like, and there's, there's a certain level of shift that I'm doing in my, my practice specifically. I'm trying to make everything I do, especially you know, with working with the families, is really focused on relationships, not transactions. So uh, I, I think you know, going back to the like, oh, well, go, go do your own thing until the market crashes. I'm really educating. I, 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 in terms of investments, I believe that the primary gap between risk tolerance and risk capacity is education. And I think, you know, the advisors, I think you know, a lot of them are using the, you know, we're going to do the, the, the risk tolerance questionnaire, right? And then we're, I'm going to kind of meet you in the middle between what I know about your risk capacity and what I know about your risk tolerance. But I, I think through financial education, you can really narrow that gap. Ultimately, where, for example, when I um, talk about bonds with clients, kind of the typical general public thinks that stocks are risky and bonds are safe. Right. And as we know, there are like very different types of bonds in terms of duration and corporate versus treasury versus municipal. Right. So in, instead of just saying, here are the bonds to buy, I have a one page summary in, in the financial planning document where I educate them on all the different types of bonds and what they provide. There's really three, you know, just quick educational. What I say is really bonds can provide one or more of the following things, which is income, stability, and diversification. And I teach them which type of bonds provide what they're looking for. Because I've had I've had a lot of clients who say, hey, I don't buy bonds anymore. You know, the DIY investors say, I don't buy bonds anymore because during, you know, during COVID, my bonds went down with my stocks. Like, what's the point, right? So I show them the graph of saying, hey, the, well, the reason that your bonds went down you know, with the stocks is that you were in high, you know, high yield corporate bonds. And, and I, I think I've also seen this a lot in terms of DIY, um, not just DIY investors, but I worked with clients who they have an investment manager and they hire me to be a third party perspective to say, Hey, like, can you just tell me, like, not just how you know how my advisor is doing, but can you tell me what they're doing? Be because they're not necessarily getting that level of education of, you know, they they know they're in a sixty forty, right? They send me their their statements, and I know you know half of that forty percent is in high yield corporate bonds. I'm like, okay, well, there's some definitely some chasing of performance really to keep up with expectations of beating benchmarks. And I I don't necessarily talk badly about the other advisor. I just educate. I was saying. Oh well, here's the reason the bonds that you owned went down, and here are some, you know, here are some conversations that. It, it, I mean, I, I do feel kind of sad that you know they haven't felt comfortable asking these questions of the of their you know their investment manager, right? But I, I just take this opportunity. Um, my, we we hear a lot about the one page the one page financial plan, and instead of doing a one page financial plan, I do a one page summary of every topic area. So my typical financial plan is twenty five to thirty financial planning summaries, each of them is really focused on the education of the concept, not just telling them what to do. And of course, not tell, not just doing it for them. So, so I guess from a functional perspective, the, the defining characteristic of just what makes it advice only is when you get down to the, like, I, I, I won't manage your money. I can't manage your money. So I guess like you, 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 you do not have the option for discretion in your ADV. Is right. that is that like is that fair as a characterization? Like, is that basically the the dividing line that we're talking about? Because you're you're still giving them investment advice, 
Right. I mean, you're, you're yeah. pointing out, you know, these bonds and not those bonds. And here's the issue with owning high yield in a volatile environment. So you're, you're, you're certainly still talking investments in portfolios, but it just sounds like just literally you're not managing that it's the lack of discretion and, you know, not having an LPOA that is the, is the defining line here? Is that is that a fair characterization? Right. Yeah, I think what's interesting is recently I was asking, I, I receive about four to five prospective clients per week and I refer out most of them because I'm at deliberate capacity, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. But really the defining factor is so when, I, when, I'm, when I'm looking for people to refer other planners, I say, hey, does anybody an advice only planner? And people say, oh yeah, I am. I, I do advice only. And when I look, it's like, it's really that they offer a flat fee, but they happen to manage investment. You know, they, they kind of do a little bit of everything. Like you said, just sort of the like, you know, yeah, I do. I do financial. I do financial planning fees like, oh, well, like, why are you affiliated with the broker term? Oh, well, I also sell these products like, well, so you're really primarily in the product business, not the not the fee business. Right. Just the, that distinction between doing some of each. And, you know, that's fine for some clients, perhaps that want or need the help across each. But just the. Absolutely. The nature of the word only, particularly if you're using it as a differentiator, like only means only. Right. The, the only thing you're providing is personalized education, period. And and that that really means like, yeah, again, that's why I've added that, you know, the option to manage investments. And I'm not saying that certainly there is definitely a need for advisors to be serving delegators, right? But this is on the other end of the spectrum in terms of DIYers. I think w when I talk with planners who are especially about to launch a firm, what usually happens is people... It, planners define their compensation model, then they go, okay, well, how am I going to, you know, who am I going to serve and how am I going to provide value? So what I've, I really urge planners to do is flip the switch on that and say, who am I going to serve? How am I going to provide value? And then now I can say, what's the most appropriate way for the families I serve to pay for that value? So I think if, you know, if, if more planners would flip the switch on that, they'd understand kind of that, you know, how the advice only structure kind of comes about. And I think personally, you know, if I were looking for a financial planner, even without being a planner myself, this is exactly what I would be looking for. I very much align with the financial independence community. I, you know, my wife and I are on our own path to FI, and this is very much what I'd be looking for. So it's it's very appropriate, I think, really for planners to, to say, how would I like to be served? Not not just in terms of compensation, but again, going back to how would I want to be served in terms of value? So to me, I would want, you know, I, I'm the type of person that if I want to learn about a topic... I listen to all the podcasts two times speed. I read all the books, you know, all those things. So I really want to work with a financial planner who goes beyond the basics, has the heart of a teacher, wants to really provide personalized education. But here's here's the thing with the DIY, the DIY community is exposed to a lot of dogmatic one size fits all financial, you know, personal finance media, right? There's the always do this, never do that. Here are the top 10 things you must do. Even in the financial independence community, there are some very kind of rules of thumb as planners, we also have things like the three to six month emergency fund, right? right. Uh, but I'm the type of person, if I were looking for a planner, I would say, well, let's go beyond the rules of thumb. You know, I, I say beyond the basics. And I, I ultimately want every part of my financial life to be aligned with my personal objectives and values, not kind of like the average persons. They're really looking for that. Right. You know, let's take every, everybody in the world out of the room, but us. And let's just, I, and I, I tell families that your financial planning document it means nothing to anybody else. It's very much just you know, like, this right. is just yours. You know, I, I use, I create all my own templates from scratch so that I can specifically serve and communicate you know, the financial education to exactly who I'm serving. Well, I, th I think you make a, a powerful point of saying like, look, there's this segment of advisors out there 
that are serving delegators, right? People who have assets who would like to delegate that to someone else and have someone else manage it for them. And like, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with, with that, right? I mean, just AUM and empirically is a very successful business model, but just not everyone's a delegator, right? And so in the in the modern environment today with firms going towards AUM, like, you know, there, I mean, there, there's basically two types of clients, good clients who are willing to delegate to you and bad clients who won't. And, and, and we don't work with bad clients. Uh, all right. I know some firms that literally like write engagement standards. You know, if you're, if you're not going to work with us with your entire personal financial picture and delegate all of your assets to us, we're not going to work with you. Right. And, 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 that's, and that's completely it, okay. Right. As long as that transparency is there and that you have really intentionality and, in who you're serving, how you're serving. Yeah. And just, you know, if you're going to go to that extreme, you're going to get some like hyper delegating. I just really don't want to touch this money stuff clients. Mm-hmm. And like, and, and that's fine. But it just the striking thing to me about how you're framing this is, is just sort of acknowledging that the there is this other there is this other end of the spectrum that just you know the 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 do it yourself investor the do it the more do it yourself client and and I guess a recognizing that you know just because they do their investments themselves doesn't doesn't mean they don't want an advisor for anything it just means they don't want an advisor to manage their investments right well uh, one, of, one of the key phrases that um, we really help define together is that. Really, just, there's a big misconception that just because somebody's a do-it-yourself investor, a DIYer, doesn't mean they're a learn-it-yourself investor, right? That they somehow, just because they do it themselves, know everything about what they're doing. Like the, the people who are DIYers, they're the ones who are, they're on the, they're in the Facebook groups, they're in the Reddit, you know, they're in, you know, sometimes the, uh, you know, sometimes the healthy groups, sometimes the unhealthy, but yeah. really... What what's happening in terms of you know the metaphor metaphor toward medical is they've gone onto Google and they've gone onto WebMD and they've they've done all their ser- searches for their symptoms and treatment options, but now they're saying you know what like there's so much information here I just want to go get that second opinion I want to go see a doctor who's just going to say hey yeah. based on exactly your symptoms and you know your treatment options here are and it's a little bit different from a doctor because most people aren't going to do their own surgery but. To me, this is like advice-only planning is like hiring somebody. Let's say that I have a bro- broken sink in my bathroom. Instead of just hiring somebody to do it for me, I hire somebody to say to walk me along and say, okay, you see this part? So we're going to untwist this part. So not, not just doing it for them, actually doing it with them and giving them the education to graduate so that next time they need to fix their sink, they can do actually do it themselves. Yeah, it... it so it reminds me, uh, Forrester, which is... Uh, a research service that actually covers covers a lot of industries and channels, but in, in, including the financial services industry, you know, has done this research for years around the psychographics of consumers. And one of the things I know that that Forrester has long talked about in in this context is that you know historically we've talked about we've talked about like sort of these these opposite ends of the spectrum: delegators who work with advisors and hand over all the assets, do it yourselfers who just you know, do it themselves now, probably on like online platforms, you know, uh, mm-hmm. eTrade.com and the like. And, and just like you're, you're, you're one or the other. And one of the striking things to me that Forrester pointed out, has pointed out with their research is that there's really a third group that sits in between the two that, uh, that Forrester calls the validators. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea of validators is, you know, they they mostly implement themselves. They want to do their own thing, but they like to work with advisors because they want an expert to validate hmm. that they're doing the right thing, that they're making the right decision, right? Like, I've done my research, but, you know, I'm not the expert. You're the expert. So I don't need you to do the whole thing for me. I've done some of my research, but like, 
it, can I just show this to you and and you know pay you for pay you for a second opinion before I go do this thing myself? And like I totally value an advisor. I don't need to go hands off. I'm fine to mm-hmm. do it, but I don't want to go expertise off. I don't want to go entirely on my own. I need I need someone to make sure I'm doing the right thing here, and then and then I'll go do it because I'm feeling quite confident and comfortable in my ability to do it. Well, and it's funny, it reminds me actually of when financial planners are launching their firm, like you know, with XY, for example, they and they they reach out, they consult another financial planner, not necessarily to be. I mean, I probably get away from. I think that you know that terminology you said is a little bit better than like a firmer that you're just having people hire you to tell you yep. that they're on the right track, but. There's very much like the same feeling of any consulting in any industry of saying, hey, I don't know what I don't know. I'm willing to be kind of like humble enough, uh, you know, humble enough to back up and just learn from somebody who who can teach me something that, again, it's very much blind spots. Uh, they come in and say, hey, like, I know it. I know a lot. It's funny, the average the average family that I work with, in terms of really technical concepts, they know more than probably the average advisor, especially when I'm working with people who want to retire early, they're talking about Roth conversion ladders and they understand like SEPP, you know, 72T and the rule yeah. of 55. A lot of concepts that aren't necessarily, not necessarily like really focuses of education at, you know, CFP level, because it, again, it's, yeah. again, it goes into that niche. But I, I have a lot of families tell me that they have reached out to advisors and they say, oh, I really want to do a Roth conversion ladder. And the advisor goes, well, what's that? And they're like, uh, <laughs> I better go find someone else because this just, I mean, again, it's, it's not, it's not the early advisor's fault for not knowing the terminology of that specific, you know, kind of community, how they, how they view really early distribution strategies. But um, it, yeah, it's just, it's, a, it's very, it's very much a, there's so many different types yeah. of communities like that. I'm sure I'm just, I'm so, serving just one of them. So, so it strikes me. So on the one hand, like I, it's fascinating to me to see this sort of emergence of firms starting to market themselves as advice only to really make this distinction. I mean, to me, it's, it, yeah, for the advisor who's either, I guess, a do-it-yourself or, or, or call it a delegator, like a, a, a self-implementer, but willing to pay for advice. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it. Adv- advice only is just like hi- hanging out a giant shingle that says, like, mm-hmm. I will just give you the advice and I'm not going to pitch you for your assets. Right. And, you know, if you're a do-it-yourself or that just wants the advice and doesn't want to be pitching the assets, like, just th- thank goodness. Like, just, okay, you do what I'm looking for. I don't have to do this and suss it out and then get to the the prospect you had always back who said like i've i've interviewed 10 advisors because i just want to pay them for a financial plan and none of them will do the plan without an expectation of managing my money at the end of it so just you know advice only even just from pure marketing differentiation perspective it's just kind of like rolling out the welcome mat for self-implementing validators and if that's who you want to work with like great to roll the welcome mat out to them you'll 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 bring them right in it does strike me though that like, I feel like still at the end of the day, just I'm assuming you're you're going to get paid a financial planning fee for for your for your advice. You're going to get paid something for your time that you're giving advice. And right. so, and I mean, we we've had that model for a long time, right? Like Garrett Planning Network launched more than 20 mm-hmm. years ago, right. specifically around you know just giving advice on an hourly basis without investment management. Mm-hmm. So, like. Do you make a distinction between advice only and an hourly model that's been around for for twenty plus years? Is this just like a better way to package it and <laughs> and message it? Is there something else that's different in the rise of advice only versus the hourly financial planner? So yeah, so so hourly again, hourly kind of falls like actually under advice only. So advice only really has three fee structures, which is uh, so advice only has really you can do hourly, 
really, uh, which is typically like limited scope or sometimes, you know, sometimes not always, it's kind of like a pay as you pay as you can afford financial planning. Then there's the retainer model, the subscription of ongoing accountability, certainly. And then there's this like project based, which a lot of us call like the one time plan. Right. So I would say that those three are actually compensation models underneath kind of underneath the roof or umbrella of advice only. Okay. And I, and I guess just the distinction, because there, there are obviously AUM firms and commission-based firms and others that are doing hourly or retainers or project-based as well. But just the distinction is not only are you doing these, but like you're only doing <laughs> only. these, right? Just that, that's the, that's it just is the, the difference between a firm that will do, you know, a firm that will manage your portfolio for a fee, but also sells products versus a firm that only will manage your portfolio for a fee, which is fee only for us. You know, advice only is just the distinction of, yeah, other firms might do these some of these structures and charge these fees, but this is the only thing we do. So mm-hmm. you can know if you come to us for this, like this is the whole thing. This is the whole engagement. Um, it's not a loss leader. I'm not trying to do it to pitch you for something else. There's no bait and switch thing here. Just um, I'm all in on this. If this is what you want, I'm here to do this and only this for you. Right. Well, I, I would say that it's a little bit difficult. I, I think that not just at planners, but just generally, people really like to find a title or like we're all searching for like this identity of like purpose fulfillment, like calling ourselves a certain thing. I think whether it's fee only or fiduciary or, you know, all the different compensation models. So, I mean, I specifically would love to not, you know, not have to use terminology to explain what I do, especially because, you know, advice only is in a way by saying only people are saying, oh, that, that means you don't do that. That means you don't do that. That means you don't do that. Right. They focus on the second part of advice only, which is the only, just like, you know, typically a lot of financial media, and this is a little aside, is that it focuses on the finance, not the personal part of personal finance. So I, I would, I, I wish, I mean, I, I don't think that we will get away from it, but I wish that we could get away from titles describing what you do and just the value that pr- provide both. Here, here's the key differentiator for my businesses. Yes, I focus on one-on-one, like providing value to families one-on-one, but I've created, I've created a, a firm that I can specifically provide a lot of one-to-many value. And that's really serving families who are my clients. And that's actually been the driver of demand for my one-on-one planning. But I think, so really, I personally, I, I use advice only on link, LinkedIn because I think that that terminology could certainly help, you know, help, help families. And, and I think we have, you know, right now it's just educating really financial planners, right? Because when you ask if you're advice only, you know, apparently some people, they, they think that just means fee only. So I mean, we, we can come up with all different types of definitions, but I, I'd really love to move forward and say like advice only. Yes, it's like on my, my LinkedIn, but it really doesn't, it, it, it doesn't like, it doesn't tell you like what I, what I do, how I provide value. So talk to us a little bit more in practice about just how do you actually price this? I mean, like what, what fees are you charging? What kinds of engagements are you doing that is making this feasible as a, as an advice only business model for you? Cause I, I, you know, r- right or wrong, I think the the perception out there is that at least at, that hourly firms have struggled to grow and scale beyond a certain size, right? Just if only because when you're charging by the hour and you're trying to make the income add up, you need a lot of hours. And if clients are only paying you for an hour or two at a time, you need you're a lot of clients. Your time. Like, how do you do this? <laughs> and, you know, it, it's hard to get a bajillion clients on the hourly model. And if you spend enough time marketing to get a bajillion clients, then you actually don't have any time to do the advice and get paid by the hour. So, it, like, it, it, it gets limiting. So, like, how are you pricing the your advice only model? Are you operating still on an hourly basis, or are you doing? I think you said like hourly retainers, project based. Like, what are you doing? How are you pricing this? So, 
I'm trying to keep not only the model, but my firm as transparent and simple as possible. So what I say is that every household pays the same fee for the same service and process, period. Whether you're married, you have you know, different financial planning topic areas, you make a certain amount of money, you have assets or don't have assets. Every household pays the same fee for the same service. And I, right now, I, I currently charge $6,400 for a three-month, three-meeting process. And I really think that, you, that people ask, like, how is that going to be profitable and sustainable over time? So my plan in 2022, for example, is to do two plans per month, which is 10 hours per week of financial planning one-on-one -on -one work. But that's gross revenue of $140,800 with taking one whole month off of the year. Wait, wait, wait. So, give me... Give me Give me those metrics again. Just I'm I'm trying to process that. So okay, okay, yeah. So two so two, pl two plans a month. Correct. At sixty four hundred each. Okay, okay. And then and then you said how how many hours did you say like it's taking you to do that? So so a financial a comprehensive financial plan on average takes twenty hours, including the meetings with the family. Okay. And so two two plans. To, so what did they just do that math for me? It's like because you're going to have right. like rolling plans that are. That are overlapping. So if I'm thinking about this right, like you've you've got plans take three months to go through. So on a rolling basis, if you're doing two plans a month, you got like two new this month, two from last month, and two you're winding down from the third month. So there's like six open plans at exactly at, so, at any yeah, particular have, time. So there's six so six meetings per month. So okay. Six meetings per month, which is so all together, including like the back end, you know, the, the the 15 hours of actually doing the planning and then the five hours with the family. It's it actually comes out to 10 hours per week of like of doing one-on-one -on -one financial planning. Um, so that two plans per month, you know, e each plan 20 hours. So that ends up being 10 hours per week on average. I think the average month has like 4.3333, whatever okay. uh, weeks. And then that, you know, taking one month off in the year, that ends up being $140,800. And here, here's why and I, and I come back to the pricing is actually a lot less based on like, re I, I guess like revenue isn't really the driver of what I'm doing. I think you know, when I when I back that out, it ends up yes, like being like three hundred twenty dollars a month. I launched my firm at forty two hundred dollars, and you know, as as you describe and, and you know, in, in studies certainly, like firms always raise their price, and it's it's a lot less about what can the client yep. afford, but you have to come back to kind of like what is the value of what I'm doing. I know on previous episodes talking about like perfect RIA, for example, it's like if, you know if you're if you're for pro providing what you believe is a premium product, it's okay to pr provide you know to to charge a premium for that. Well, and just, I mean, I do the math in the aggregate here. So just a $6,400 planning fee for what ultimately is a 20-hour process all in, like it's it's $320 an hour, right? which is, yeah, I think slightly slightly above average. I think the, the last mm -hmm. Kitsis benchmarking study we did, the the median hourly advisor fee was $250 an hour. So, you know, you're, you're, you're slightly higher than, than the average, but you know, as you said, like we, we can, you know, we can choose to charge above average fees for above average services and quality and outcomes, which you can, which you can do when you're super focused on who you're serving. So like, yeah, I mean, just, it certainly adds up to me on in that end. And, you know, I, I know relative to advisor community out there, right. You know, you've, you've articulated this as a goal of, you know, two plans a month for 11 out of the 12 months a year at $6,400 a plan. It's $140,000 revenue opportunity and you know I know for some advisors like their their income goals or their revenue goals are are higher than that and wouldn't necessarily be be satisfied with that but as you noted from the flip side like you're doing this in 10 hours a week so like 
you want to make you want to make two hundred eighty thousand dollars work twenty hours a week. You want to make four hundred twenty thousand dollars work thirty hours a week. And you know now now you're now you're ending out with revenue that's much higher than the average advisor, and and you're still only at thirty hours a week. Like right. there's a lot of a lot of power that comes from three hundred twenty dollars an hour for your time. And one example, I, I specifically kind of like laid these out because you know you can actually you know, let's say you have this model and you want to be a little surgy, right? Like you don't want to kind of add like the surge element to advice yeah. and planning. Like if I did three plans per month, that's 14 hours per week. That's $192,000 in annual revenue taking two months off per year, <laughs> right? So you can spin this like you can yeah. really make it as, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to work like crazy for six months out of the year and make over, you know, 250000 But again, the, the driver for me is less about, is a lot less about revenue. So I, pe- I pay myself $3,500 a month, right? So everything on top of that, really about a third, you know, a third of the year, in terms of planning covers my personal and business lifestyle. And then, but, but I'm less concerned about the revenue and, you know, the, the rest just goes in, into my, you know, in, investing to you know, reach my own financial independence goals. But to me, it's that 10 hours per week that that's really exciting to me because that means I can spend the rest of the week providing one to many value to families who are not being served one-on-one by me or other advisors. So what's the cost of this of this structure? I mean, just do you do you have a lot of expenses beyond just whatever you literally pay yourself for doing the advice work? So that my only expenses right now are XY Planning Network. That's why I launched my firm. And I, I don't use all the tech stack. I use just a little bit of the tech stack. Uh, my, my, primary, my primary tech for doing planning is Microsoft Word, Excel, and PDFs. So you know, outside of XYPN, I pay for Google Voice and I pay for Acrobat, you know, Adobe Acrobat and I think that's about it. Oh, QuickBooks. So, but all in, my 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 total my total business expenses are less than eight thousand dollars a year, including the XYPN uh, membership. So, I mean, you're even with a, an income, even with an income goal of of one hundred forty thousand dollars, like you're 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 taking home almost ninety five cents on the dollar. So, so when you, when you're saying you pay yourself. $3,500 a month. That's like, right. that's not because the business is only earning that. That's just because you're, you're just banking the rest to like the long-term investing accounts right. as opposed to the living personal expenses, living account. Right. I pay my, so I, I pay myself 30% of gross revenue. Okay. And then you're and, and just saving the other 65% of gross revenue. Yeah. Well, and that's me. It's, it's because you're fire, because you're yeah, living the fire journey as well. And to me, but again, like none of this is about so my my metric for advisor success has nothing to do with numbers and revenue. Again, because I flip, flip the switch and focus on value I can provide to families, and then oh yeah, and by the way, they'll they'll pay for it somehow, right? Like my my personal metric for success is how much can I give away without expecting anything in return, and that's just that's more of a core value than like a financial planner you know model, <laughs> right? But like I think once revenue is taken care of, like I, I really define for myself and my, my family and my business what's enough. There's very much there's a lot of coaching programs and there's a lot mm-hmm. of advisors who are very much trying to reach that you know the big number the, the million dollars in revenue like like we got to get to that point where we have to like delegate we have to hire people like but I've decided for myself like if I can be a solo firm if I can you know my my work for revenue is really you know one financial plan a month actually not even that right but revenue is taken care of in three months of the year I can spend so much more of my time providing financial education to families specifically with a passion to, to go beyond the, the dogmatic one size fits all. Like I, I'm actually trademarking the phrase, keep finance personal, because my passion is really helping families be educated that financial planning isn't just choosing investments. It's all those other areas that we're so passionate about that we learn about in courses and otherwise. But yeah, my, my passion is to help 
really to help families understand that financial planning is truly comprehensive. And, and then also by, by, by providing education, my, my hope is that like, I'm actually end up referring, you know, 10 people a week to other advisors. Like I'm really passionate about the future of the profession, especially new financial planners who a lot of them are reaching out to me through the externship, for example, and saying, wow, like I really want to do this. This aligns with exactly who I want to serve and how I want to serve. And I didn't know this was sustainable and profitable until I saw your model. Hey, well, it's just the phenomenon. Like when, you know, when you get the revenue per client up to healthy numbers, it just doesn't take a lot of clients to make the, to make the math work, right? You know, when, when you're, I mean, kind of getting back to the hourly discussion before, right? If you're, if you're charging a couple hundred dollars an hour, but the average client only buys an hour or two of your, of your time, right? If you live in a world where the average client only gives you 500 bucks for an engagement, suddenly if you want to do $150,000 of revenue, like you need 300 clients, which is <laughs> right, right. sort of mind-numbingly painful for, for most advisors when you're charging $6,400 a client and suddenly now you need 24 clients to make the same numbers work instead of 300 clients, well, just suddenly the calculus there. looks a whole lot different. Well, it's funny too. And a lot of times you'll hear, wow, you charge 6,400 for three, a three month, three meeting process. Like that's crazy. But the average, the average family I serve has between two to $3 million in investable assets. So they see this as a complete steal, not, not just in terms of like, you know, the fee, but the, the families I've worked with who have an investment manager and they, they hire me to do a one-time plan they say, why did I just pay you $6,400 to provide all of this when I'm paying somebody else, like, you know, even sometimes more than $30,000 a year to just, in their mind, just choose investments for them? So is that, rep- like, is that a good reflection of the, the typical client? Like, just it's, it's people who have, may have a couple million dollars in, in assets and portfolios, but again, like, they don't want to delegate, so they're not interested in handing off to an advisor that's going to charge them 1% or, you know, to be fair, probably a little lower than 1% right. with breakpoints well, there. But uh, like this, they don't want to delegate to someone who's going to charge them an AUM fee on an ongoing basis. They just want to pay once. But when every other advisor is charging them fifteen dollars to $25,000 a year ongoing, like writing a check for $6,400 once is not such a big deal. They view, as you said, like right. they view it as a steal of a deal for you to be charging $320 an hour for a three-month remitting process. <laughs> well, and, and also, it, it, a lot of it has to do with the timeline of what their objectives are financially. So not only are they DIY investors who know a lot about what they're, what they're doing. You know, when I, when I, my, my typical family sends me between 40 and 50 documents when we do data gathering because I, I describe it as I look at everything in your life with a number on it. Advisors always tell me, like, how do you actually get them to send you all that stuff? And I go, they send it to me within three days. <laughs> like, it's already in the Google Drive, well, ready to share. Like, they, you know, they've got well, spreadsheets. They've got more spreadsheets than I do on their computer. So, which I, I guess I'm guessing is sort of a function of two things. One, you are working with do-it-yourselfers, so they and and you know, do-it-yourselfers that want to invest in their education, which means they tend to be pretty savvy and on top of their stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. And and I'm presuming B just they know you don't have the option to manage investments, so they don't need to hide anything out of fear you're going to ask them to manage it. <laughs> Right. And a big part of it, I didn't think about this until right now, is that a lot of times when we're talking about retirement planning, we're focusing on somebody who's you know about to pull the trigger on Social Security, talking about Medicare, things like that. I'm working with clients sometimes who are in their mid 40s, right? They, they not only have you know a lot of different topic areas to deal with, but they're also very, very like, they're very bright. <laughs> like they, a lot of them say, like, I could see myself ha- having somebody help me manage my investments when I get to 
those traditional ages, but not right now when I'm 45 and I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm still like knocking out the crossword puzzle every morning. Right. It's just, they're, they're, they're feeling young and bright and vivacious. Yeah. They're like, they're like, like, while I have the capacity, the mental capacity to do this, I'm going to do this. Like, why, like why pay for something I can do myself today? And it's not just that they, when people ask me, Hey, should I use a financial advisor to manage my money? I always say, it's really, if you don't have the time, the temperament or the talent, the three T's, a big plug for Joe Burkoff at my last firm, who I love that phrase though, the time, temperament and talent to do, to do it themselves. That's when it makes sense. Uh, certainly to, you know, to, to do some delegation, the families I work with, they have the time, not only because it's not just because they have tons of time on their hand, but that's how they, pri- they prioritize their time on right. focusing on like financial wellness. That's, that really matters to them. The temperament, again, they've had, they've kind of closed that gap between the risk tolerance and risk capacity. A lot of them very much have a low cost passive approach with, with, with really like saying, Hey, I'm just going to like, I, I know this is like a buy and hold. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to, they're already doing tax gain loss harvesting. So, and then the, the talent really comes from them just like, yeah, that self-education. And a lot of them spend money to educate themselves. I, I've even worked with some families who say, hey, I want to retire early at 45. And I'm going to get the CFP. I'm going to go through the CFP education <laughs> program just so that I can learn more about what I'm doing. So I get it. Just it's, it's this particular segment of folks that are financially sharp, financially savvy, financially successful, right? Just uh, the reality is uh, if these were the folks that get whipsawed every bear market and make bad sales at the bottom, like right. they wouldn't have two or $3 million by their forties. Like just, right. I, I know we, we, we have this tendency in the advisor world, right? We have this tendency in the advisor world to just sort of assume that any investor who manages money themselves is going to be horrible at it and blow themselves up. Cause we've all seen watching somebody on TikTok like sell NFTs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I mean, to be fair, like it's, it's because that's what we see as advisors, right? Just like one client after another who comes in, who has a terrible sob story about how they, yeah. you know, completely screwed things up and they, they sold everything at the bottom of the pandemic route in late March or early April of, of 2020, <laughs> or, you know, they dumped in the financial crisis, the tech crash to, you know, they've, they've blown themselves up and they've say like, okay, I probably really need to not be managing this anymore. Or, you know, my spouse has said, I need to stop doing this because it's creating marital strife because I, I've done a bad job. But I, I feel like we, we sometimes forget that, well, you know, there are other people out there who are doing just fine. We just don't see them. They don't call. Well, yeah, like we have a huge self-selection bias. The only people who call advisors for that are the the ones most prone to blow themselves up. So that's fine. Like that, that's why they hire us, and that's why they become delegators, and that's why they're a good fit. But I, I do think we, I think we have a tendency to overgeneralize. Like all do-it-yourselfers are terrible self-directed investors who blow themselves up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just mathematically from the market end, it, it can't be true. Because if it was, there would be a giant pile of alpha on the table for whoever takes the opposite side of all those trades. Well, just if was, every yeah. if every individual investor was all systematically underperforming by hundreds of basis points every year. But the families I was serving, so the, I'll just say it's quickly, the, the families I, were, I serve during, you know, if I asked them what they did during the COVID crash, they said, we were digging in the couch cushion for money to put into the market. Those yeah. are the people I'm serving, okay? Like these are the people who are, everybody else is like, running to cash, they're trying to find cash to throw in. So they're yep. very much on the flip side psychologically as well, which yep. sometimes I would say behaviorally that might not be healthy on the, in terms of the frugality be, can become like actually a, a negative, like a hindrance on their financial wellness as well. So it's funny, the psychology is still important for delegators and DIYers, but they, they're just geared very differently about risk yeah. and um, really kind of, again, that, yeah. that ongoing Wait. education, they're willing to put in the time yeah. 
to know exactly what they're doing and why. Which again, I think makes that that powerful point. Like just as much as we advisors want to talk about the do-it-yourselfers who who blow themselves up and then come to us to delegate, like there's another segment of do-it-yourselfers. Like they're doing fine. Like they understand that you're supposed to invest when times are difficult and you're supposed to hold the you're supposed to stay invested and you're supposed to stay the course. And like they do it. They're fine. They actually do it. They just have other financial questions well, that they want to pay for and get answers to, and they don't and they don't want to delegate a portfolio to get there because they're actually doing fine on their portfolio without us. Right. Well, it's so um, the topics. So the prioritized topics that come to me aren't the things you can learn. Like I always say, Google is not a financial plan. Like these are the things you can't you can't learn on Google how much you should convert to Roth this year, right? Or what is like. How you know what in terms of your asset tax location between traditional taxable and Roth? You know, really, this this cash flow flexibility is underappreciated till it's too late, especially for early retirees. So it's like you can Google that all day long. You can Google how much should I convert this year, right? And it's yeah. it's all going to be rules of thumb. And they go, well, I I'm the type of person who like I want to lay out a long term strategy, but like I want to implement this on an annual basis mm-hmm. and understand not not just use a, a tax preparer who might look backward, but I want, you know, first of all, I want somebody who can help me find a tax planner who looks forward, right? That's very much why I, I'm a big fan of the EA enrolled agent designation for an ECFP because nearly every movement of money has a tax consequence. <laughs> but the, the families I work with, they want the, they want the answers that are not just ungoogleable, but they're ready to make something that's only mm. like specific to their family and their, and their, their personal financial ecosystem and personal values, it, those are those are impossible things to align by going into like a, a Reddit forum or something like that. So, so help us understand a little bit more now. Just we've talked a few times about sixty four hundred dollars for three meetings across three months, but just can you walk us through the planning process a little bit more of just what you're doing, what you're doing in between meetings, what you're doing in between meetings? Because just I'm assuming the meetings are typically an hour or two, which means you've got right. like. You got 14 hours outside of meetings, which is actually a lot longer than the time that's in the meetings. So, so just can you walk us through the process? Like I just I've you've sold me on the on the process, Cody. This sounds great. Like I'll send you an sign, letter, Michael, over here. Yeah, you know, like si- sign me up. I'm ready to do your three month uh, thing. So, like, what happens? What happens first? How does this actually work? So, 90% of my inquiries actually come from Facebook DMs. And then, of course, I, I push them off of Facebook into onto the, onto the website where they fill out the contact me page. So we can probably talk about like kind of the how those prospective clients find me to begin with in a little bit. But so they reach out to me and say, "Hey, like I you know I want to work with you. Do you have capacity to work with me and my family?" So I, I set up an intro call with them. So my my I think this is very important. My website has the service process and fee all transparently laid out, so that they understand all the transactional part of the business. So that when we have our intro call, it's all about them. I believe that success is defined by the ability to to create and meet expectations. And I want the expectation that financial planning is relational, not transactional. So when we have our intro call, it's all about them. I start writing this stuff out on you know Microsoft Word. Like I, I do most of my planning in terms of like you know paragraph form in, in Microsoft Word. Once we have the intro call, I might have shown them an example of a comprehensive financial plan if they, they want to kind of see what the tangibles look like. And DIY investors, you're usually saying, oh, I want to see what I'm going to get at the end of this. Okay. So, you, so you've got like a sample, you know, appropriately anonymized sample financial plan that you, that you show clients. Right. And that's, like that, that's actually a, a PDF that includes about 40 different financial planning summaries I've created in different topics. And as we're discussing things, 
they go, oh yeah, we, you know, we have a mortgage and I can, you know, quickly scroll down and say, oh, well, here's, here's a debt, re- you know, here's my debt repayment summary that I've created for a family. And I can just briefly educate them on like, you know, here's the, here's the types of things that I, I talked with that family about. And they go, they turn to each other, you know, the sp- spouses or partners, they go, ooh, we want that. We want that. So showing them real examples of the financial planning, tang- like the tangible deliverable is very important to DIY investors. And th- this is also a reason that I, I still send I still send like the combed bound copy of financial plans to families because these are the families who will read it twice and they'll literally like sleep with it, like, you know, sleep with it on top of their head. So these are the families that want the tangible. So I show them examples of that. We discuss, we really focus it on, I really want to learn about their family and they're like, I'm going to learn about, I'm going to learn their birthday. Okay. It's on their social security statement, right? Like I I don't need to go, okay, so what's your birthday? So how many kids, Mm -hmm. again, this is very transactional. So I really just focus on like, really their prioritized financial objectives, right? And then like really just tell me about setting the expectation up front again, that money is just a tool to provide for your desired lifestyle. So it's not about the money, it's about your life, setting those expectations. After that call, um, I don't make, they don't make the decision during that call. I tell them, especially if they're married, I say, or uh, partners, I say, hey, um, you know, you're welcome to just like, I actually encourage you to discuss this important decision to move forward. Um, if you'd like to, you can simply send me an email. Usually that email comes within like the afternoon of the next day. I send them an engagement letter. They pay half of the fee, which is $3,200. Once they submit the, the signatures and the fee, I get them onboarded into eMoney to do the data gathering. And I send them a data gathering checklist with all the list of all the things that may apply to their financial ecosystem. They upload documents and connect accounts typically less in less than a week. Once those are uploaded sufficiently, I send them an email and saying, like, you know, like, thank you so much for op- uploading all this wonderful information. And I say, you know, so I, I usually send them um, three options for meetings. So a big part of expectations for me is I, I personally don't like using Calendly because it, it kind of creates the expectation that they kind of control your schedule. So one thing mm. that I do is, I, so to set up the data gathering meeting and same thing with the intro call, I always send three dates and times. And I do this manually. I'm willing to put in the time to do this manually because it's just another opportunity to be relational. So I'll say, you know, here are th- three, here's a morning option mm. and, you know, a, kind of a lunchtime option, an afternoon option. You know, and and there there is certainly a lot of like limited beliefs that advisors have about being like, but what if none of those work for them? You know, like ninety five percent of the time, like they just pick one of those times and it works yeah. for them. Uh, well, so. the, then they'll reply and say, none of this, none of these work. Right. Can you suggest and another, another opportunity option? to have a have a conversation? Right? Yeah, another like, oh man, another conver- uh, another another way to have a relationship, right? You know, a collaborative uh, conversation. So so they we schedule the the data gathering call. So you know, between that. What I do now is they've uploaded all these documents, connected accounts. I have spreadsheets. I have templates and calculators for that I've built in Excel, for example, and, and Word for every planning area. So I have calculators for like pay statements, debt repayment, mortgage flexibility, retirement savings, education savings, et cetera. So I create all, the, all of these. I review and summarize all of their quantitative financial information. And I make highlights on the Word file of all the opportunities to turn those quantitative that, that quantitative information into qualitative conversations. So just a quick example of that is when I'm looking at a social security statement, families think that they're giving that to me because I'm going to read what they get at 62, you know, full retirement age and 70. But I'm really looking at page two and looking at their earnings history. Right? Uh-huh. I can say, hey, you know, hey, Susie, this is incredible to me. I see that you made $2,000 when you were 15 years old. Like, tell me about your first job, right? What's amazing about that First of all, it gets away from, there's a lot of questions we talk about, like, what are the perfect questions to ask advisors? And a big one is kind of like, you know, tell me about money growing up or tell me, you know, tell me your first memory about money. 
But if I can take, you know, I have so much, inf- like all these quantitative documents tell a story about their family. Right. I can, I can say some, a question that only means something to Susie, right? I can say, you know, what was your first job? And it's amazing, actually, I've been collecting kind of the first jobs. It's pretty incredible. With people. There's a lot of people who worked in ice cream parlors for some reason uh, back in the day. But what's amazing is whether, whether Susie loved her job or hated her first job, her light face, you know, like her face lights up, right? Can you imagine that? And yeah. so I use the quantitative, I, I gather all the quantitative information. I highlight opportunities to have really good conversations and ask open-ended questions. And what's, what's even better is all of, the, all of those opportunities I came up with, they're on the screen for the client to see that document. And they go, they turn to each other and go, wow, how did he know that? How did he know that? Right? And, but that's the perfect opportunity going back to education to say, say, hey, like, you know, I learned from your social security statement that you started working at age 15. Right. That makes the connection that now the family understands, wow, like, like I didn't, I didn't know all that like black and white data actually meant something like actually was, you know, said something about us as a family. So they start to actually be excited moving forward, like about looking at data in a different way. So, so a couple of questions here, just so you're walking through the, the early part of this process. So actually the first is I'm wondering like, why, why half the fee upfront? Like um, why you, you could do none, you could do all, you could do 25%, like just well, why, why up front and, and where did half the fee up front come from? So the, the, the two parts of it, one is that you know, in terms of value, I, I, a lot of firms like still treat financial planning as a loss leader and you know, what you don't pay for, you don't necessarily value. So the, the one is that, you know, I, I, I don't look at any financial, I don't look at any of their financial documents until they've paid half the fee. But that, that's, that's one, you know, two things. One is it's the value of my time that I put into that, right? Not just the value of my time, but like really the, the, you know, my education experience. And, and also like a lot of that emotional intelligence, intelligence that goes into, you know, looking through those quantitative documents and finding conversations out of them. The second is that really is the commitment for, for the client to see, you know, you're going to start, you're going to start hearing me say family instead of client, really, again, going back to relationships over transactions, like they're, they're going to once they've paid that fee, are they going to send me their financial documents, right? <laughs> like right. there's a pretty good, there's a pretty, you know, once somebody's paying you to do financial planning, they're, they're probably going to move forward with their, you know, their responsibilities in the relationship. So I, I think, so half of the free fee up front is really that way to show not just that they're serious about it, but this is again, this is, we have not just collaborative conversations, but we have collaborative responsibilities. And then the second half of the fee just feels very natural to say, okay, now the work is, you know, we've, it's, it's very much an arc, you know, you pay the fee at the front, you do this arc of conversations and financial education. Once they receive the physical copy of the plan document, then they pay the second half of that fee. And that's, you know, that's, that's around the time where I help them, uh, you know, maybe I'll do some screen share implementation if they'd like, you know, more help understanding their, their uh, investment platform, for example. But it's very much like, I, I just think that that fee really helps like create an arc for the client. And then you said, I heard both data gathering checklist e-money, it sounds like for account linking and, and, and portal. So just can you talk a little bit more about just like w- what this is, how it comes together? It sounds like you're, you're very built around e-money's portal as an anchor for this. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, you know, this is something that I, I ask myself all the time, like, and, and other financial planners are like, well, so why do you have e-money again? <laughs> like, you're just using it to like gather. So I'm, I'm pretty much just using e-money to like, upload documents and connect accounts at this point. And there's a discount with XYPN. So it's like, and I, I spent three years using XY, you know, 
using e-money. So that was like, th- that helped but, with the transition of launching a firm. To use but you're, but you're not doing any, oh, it's the wrong way to say it. Like you're not doing any planning in e-money. Well, <laughs> like so you're, this is what's it's, funny. Uh, it's the, it's the portal and the aggregation and the, and the document vault, but then all the actual planning stuff is happening in the Excel templates you built yourself. Well, so here, here's the thing. I, so I believe that financial planning, financial planning software, like e-money or right capital, like they're great tools to use while planning, but they don't create the financial plan. So what I mean by that is I, I'll use e-money to like, even sometimes like just conceptualize, right? I, I think, I think planning, planning software is great for like just having like a, a broad conceptualization of like, oh yeah, RMDs exceed expenses in retirement, right? Like, like that, that's all I needed to know. I didn't know, I need to know like the, you know, the chance of that happening or how much your electricity bill is going to be in 40 years, right? But so I use it conceptually as a tool, but I don't use any reports from e-money because again, it's very much like templated. It's, it's, it's really an, an impersonal vehicle that I'd probably have to spend more time kind of undoing how impersonal the reports are versus just creating my own process from scratch where I can make every, every topic area summary you know, perfectly aligned with how I'm communicating to that specific client. So I, I just, I created all of my own process for, for doing the data gathering analysis and developing the plan and certainly the formatting of the plan presentation. So the only page right now in a financial planning, like let's say a 40, a 40 page financial plan right now, the only page that's from e-money is that is the balance sheet, which I could easily just, just as easily, probably just as easily just create an Excel. So I don't use e-money reports to deliver content. I just use it as a tool for conceptualizing just some very specific things, maybe Roth conversions or just kind of seeing the, the impact of RMDs. And so again, just so so why why not? I mean, as you said, like you frame that as e-money is a great tool to use while planning, but they don't create the financial plan. Just I know I do know a lot of advisors literally print the e-money output as the financial plan. So just just distinguish this for us more. Like what 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 do you think of or call or characterize as the financial plan that you feel e money is not creating? Well, so I would just say that the, that so typically we're using those softwares for like cash flow planning, like retirement cash flows, right? Okay. Which is just one topic out of thirty plus topics that are included in my comprehensive plan. So I, I, it's just that you know it doesn't do like so. I've created a template for um, helping people understand like. I show them how to how to read their pay statement, like how to understand your earnings, deductions, and taxes. That most most people, you know, it used to be called a pay stub. Now people don't look at their pay statement. So, you know, I I can't, you know, like planning software. You know, maybe maybe soon, right? Maybe shortly. It's at some point you're going to be able to like throw in somebody's pay statement or summary plan description, and it's and it's going to give you like a, a report of like the summary of that, right? right? So I just think yeah, the the thirty the thirty or so plan, financial planning topic areas that I. I like to educate clients about aren't yet in financial planning software reports. And so can you talk a little bit more about just what what are those areas? I mean you've you've kind of mentioned a few here like earnings earnings pay statements and Roth Roth conversion ladders and asset location, but right. can you talk more about just like what are all the things that you're putting in and covering in your financial plan? I guess like what are all these templates that you've built in Excel that become your financial plan output? Here I'll do. I'll just do a quick rundown since it's in front of me on the on my whiteboard. <laughs> so, these are the typical summaries for a comprehensive financial plan. So, there's the balance sheet, right? We, we all know what a balance sheet is, and you know right. a balance sheet. I mean, I won't spend this much time on every on every one certainly, but a balance sheet. Most so it's funny. Most families and even a lot of financial planners, we focus on net worth. We focus really on the numbers. 
I completely avoid looking at the numbers on the balance sheet, which sounds goofy. You're like, well, what's the point? So a balance sheet to me is a way to educate about asset tax location between qualified and non-qualified assets, you know, and really the cash flow flexibility and control of each. And then also talking about uh, estate planning, account titling, beneficiary designations on accounts. So the, the balance sheet is really asset tax location and account titling. And then the rest, I won't spend that much time on, but that's just an example of how I viewed these things differently. Debt repayment summary, a mortgage flexibility summary, estate planning summary, which is either if they have documents already drafted, it's a one-page summary of all their documents in one place that they can share with their you know, successor executors and agents as well, or just, you know, just have it in front of all their documents at home. But I have, I have a summary about all their investment accounts individually, and then as a total portfolio and investment funds or you know, securities. And education about diversification. So like, what is diversification? Uh, so I call that diversification review. There's uh, asset allocation examples. That's where I give them specific investment advice. Uh, charitable giving options, education needs, education savings needs, education, sorry, child savings options, pay statement and employee benefits. I'll go down the laundry list. Life insurance, health insurance, long-term care funding. I teach them how the income tax really brackets work, how they work corresponding with IRMA and Medicare premiums, property and casualty insurance, retirement savings needs, retirement savings options, summary plan description details, social security analysis, Roth conversion strategy, accumulation order of operations, distribution order of operations, retirement spending plan, income and, tax re- review, executive and summary, so and measurable action plan. Every one of these is just like an Excel one pager, basically, that just has some some education stuff, some inputs and some output. Like, am I thinking about that appropriately? Right. So every one of those that I described has a word file and some have an Excel file or calculator, like kind of tied along and, with it. And so the the output for the client, like the, the financial plan is just the list of these one pagers, whichever one specifically applies for them. Because right. obviously, you know, won't, won't, won't do the education savings one if you don't have kids, right? So like right. the the... You've got this giant list of a few dozen of these, whichever ones apply to the client are the ones that you do. Each one, you 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 input their stuff, you get the output that comes from that. That becomes the client presentation in the plan delivery and just you're walking through and teaching to each of these one pagers. Right. And what's what's really nice about having this like process from scratch is that it's not just that they, I don't just say, okay, like which ones of these that I've created do they need? There's always every financial plan is usually an opportunity to like create a new summary, right? So I have a summary right. called like mortgage, you know, mortgage and retirement. So the facts about like, you know, can you get a mortgage in retirement? There's a lot of misconceptions about getting a mortgage once you're not working, right? So I've, I've create, I have a called a credit card hacking summary where I show examples of credit cards that would actually help them achieve some of their travel goals moving forward. So every mm. client has very, like, yeah, you know, as I'm having conversations, I go, oh, I should create a summary for that. And then of course, moving forward, I, like, I go, oh yeah, I created a summary. I can just like, I can use like all those are now templated and now I can just apply it to that specific client. And I was going to say, so is just building all these sounds fairly time and labor intensive, but I, I guess that's the point. Like you, it's not like you went out and said, I'm going to go come up with my 40 things. It's no, no, no. Yeah. you, 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 you got a client, you made some, and then you got another client that had some different needs and you made some more. And then you got another client that had a different thing. So you made two or three more. And right. over the last two years, exactly. And so now cumulatively, you've got a library of these. Right. And uh, yeah, what's, what, and what's funny is I've I've shared this library, and for example, like next year, I'm actually sharing my entire comprehensive financial planning process with both DIY investors. So like I have Measure Twice Money, which is just a financial education. So 
I'm going to create a video course on how to create all those documents for DIY investors. But then so many financial planners have asked me, hey, like, I want to learn how to do that too. Like, like create my own process from scratch. Can you help me out? So I've decided to like actually now turn that into video courses for planners on measuretwiceplanners.com. So again, you come back to like, where are you spending the rest of your time when you're not doing the 10 hours a week? It's really right. like now there's so much demand for these new models that not just the advice only part, but like, how do you create a, you know, how do you create these templates from scratch? So it's, it's provided me an opportunity now that I've created my own process and continue to make it more efficient. Now I, now I can spend a lot of time sharing that with other, right. other, you know, advisors and DIY investors. And so just for those who are interested, this is episode 255. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 255, we'll have links out for measure twice planners and, and some of what Cody's been sharing here. So, I, so Cody, walk me through the just kind of the rest of the planning process, like the the three meeting process itself. So, just like what are the three meetings at the end of the day? Is this basically like a data gathering, present a plan, and implement the plan? Or I guess implementation looks different for you. So, like, what's the actual three meetings, and what what happens in each meeting and between each meeting? So, the three meetings are the intro call is actually included in. So, these are all video calls over like Zoom. Um, okay. The first one is a one-hour intro meeting, which again is just talking about learning more about the family and their personal objectives. The second meeting is the data gathering meeting. So once I've reviewed and summarized all like the 30 to 40 documents, that's when I start to ask those really good opportunity questions. So that's that's an hour and a half. That second meeting is, I call it the data gathering meeting. Then after that, that's when I, now that I understand both the quantitative part and the data gathering process, the data gathering meeting was primarily focused on the, the qualitative and now creating like collaborative, like what if scenarios and things. Now, since I have the quantitative and the qualitative, now I can develop really the comprehensive planning presentation document. And then that third meeting is typically two and a half hours. And that's where I present that that financial planning document really in an educational style. So it's a long final meeting because just you, you've let's, got a lot of... Let's into two, right? But it's fine. So DIY investors, they, they love data. <laughs> it just seems that most of them, they like... <laughs> They would love to be on the call for five hours sometimes. So um, yeah, they, they're they're two and a half hours, and I've only had one family so far saying, oh, "I think we'd like to split that, you know, split that in half." Because again, they, these are these are folks that are curious and want to learn. Right, just at the end of the day, they're so motivated to learn, they're willing to pay sixty four hundred dollars for someone to teach it to them. It's like they and, and they want to learn. And, and a lot of them, like when I, when I get on the, the the Zoom call, like they're like, "We've been waiting all day for this." <laughs> like they're so excited to like learn really to have, it's not just to learn the data, but they're really excited to finally have the clarity and confidence to move forward with all of their object- objectives. Well, and just, I think it's striking to make that point. Like I, I, I don't think a lot of advisors can say like my client's literally excited when I present the financial planning book to them. <laughs> they, they, it's funny. I, I get the emails anytime, like somebody joins a zoom call before I, I started it. Yeah. A lot of them get on the call like, you know, 12 minutes before it starts, just waiting for me to open up the open up the webinar. You know, that's kind of how they view it is like, I can't wait for the show to start. Like, let's sit on the couch and, you know, like literally have popcorn in their hand, like ready to go. Interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that end of just, so like, where do you find and get these clients that are, you know, will pay $6,400 for a three planning meeting and are so excited, like, and are so excited (laughs) to come and have you teach them so and, and pay you $320 an hour for the privilege of being educated. So the, the best way I can describe what I've done kind of on accident, this goes back to, I hear Carl Richards say a lot that the best way to, the best way to, to market is just simply be remarkable. And before I like, you know, like toot, toot my own horn and be like, I'm remarkable. 
I really say the way I describe marketing in my head now is with an extended metaphor. Are, are you you want to hear that metaphor? Sure. <laughs> okay, good. So so there's really three. So the metaphor I use is like finding a landscaper to mow your lawn. Okay. So you know what usually happens when you're you know whether you're looking for a landscaper or not. What happens is the landscaper sticks the business card in your front door. Right. You, you come home from work. You open the door. It goes to the ground. Like there you go. You now know this landscaper exists. But the moment that you knew they existed, they're already selling you a service or a product, right? So, you know, the alignment now with financial advisors is that's very much like cold calling, ads, mailers, elevator pitches. It's just like the first time I'm meeting this person, they're selling me something, right? And that's very much like the transactional, not relational, like way to market. So the second, the second way to market is let's say that, Michael, we're, we're just hanging out right now. And I say, hey, you live in my neighborhood. Like who mows your lawn? Like... And you go, oh, there's this guy, Luis, he's really great. Like, here's their number, right? So that's, you know, of course, we call that like referrals or word of mouth, right? The one thing that I do say, usually people don't complain about getting referrals, right? <laughs> but I, I will say about referrals is if the only source of incoming prospective clients that you're receiving come from word of mouth, right? That's great that, you know, your current clients, the current families you serve are really speaking well of you to others, but that if your only source is for, through referrals, that probably indicates that you're not providing any value to communities outside of your client base. That usually means that you're really only focused on serving the people who are already paying you. So the, the third part of marketing, kind of the, the flip of marketing is, let's say, Michael, like you are sitting down at your breakfast table, looking out the window in the morning, you know, having, your, having your, your, your breakfast or your coffee. And you look at across the street and there's this guy mowing the lawn. And you look down at your watch and go, oh, wow, like that guy shows up every Friday at 9 a.m., like exactly at the same time. And what's really crazy about this, this landscaper is he literally gets down on the ground and he cuts every blade of grass with a pair of scissors to make sure that they're exactly right. Like he's super, you know, he measures twice. He's super detailed, right? So what happens is you've, you've actually seen that landscaper provide value to your neighbor. You know, you've, you've seen them provide value to others. And so you go across the street and you introduce yourself and say, hey, I noticed how, how, how great of a job you do really providing value to my neighbor. Like you have the capacity to mow my lawn as well. So that third form of like, so what happened, what happened with me is I was, I was spending a lot of my time without any expectation to get clients, you know, to get clients to work with me. I was spending a lot of time providing like really financial education, not advice, just financial education through a lot of like Facebook communities. And there were just communities I was already a part of, like I was already a member of those tribes. So I was just providing, for example, in a personal finance community, they, somebody would say, uh, on the group, hey, I have the option to do a traditional or Roth 401k. What should I do? And you know, everybody's listing traditional Roth, traditional Roth. And I just say, hey, here are the here are some variables you can you should consider before making this important decision. Boom, 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 boom. I never mentioned I was an advisor, right? I never said, oh, send me a DM. But I just provided educational value, like for just months, just because I enjoyed. I believe the best way to to learn is to teach. So I was just teaching others just through education, no advice. And within six months, I had like four to five prospective messages through face Facebook DM saying, hey, I just realized that you're a financial advisor. I've, I've been seeing you, like you're so helpful to the community for months and months and months. I just realized you're an advisor. Would you be willing to work with me and my family? So they had, they'd, they'd been provided value too and watched me provide value to others. And I didn't know they existed before they reached out to me. So it's, it's none of this was to actually find clients. It was just, I wanted to provide value and I realized Ultimately, that the best way for me to you know, be successful in business is to give it all away. 
But I guess one of the interesting dynamics that that goes with that is just I'm I'm betting you were basically the only advisor active in those communities, right? Just because well, so well, so yeah. many of us are, you know, we're we're not exactly hanging, you know, we're advisors. We don't tend to hang out and do it yourself investor communities. Well, I, I, it's what's funny though is that uh, there are a lot of advisors who are joining those communities not to provide value, right? To but to find clients, so they get kicked out of the group pretty quick, right? So. For example, my my uh, Measure Twice Money, which is like my DIY investor education platform, it doesn't it doesn't link to my firm my, for financial planning. Like I specifically want to like my passion is to provide education to people without ever selling anything to them. Not being like, okay, by the way, I provided all this value, and here's you know, and now you pay me, right? Like, and the the only way that would happen is if it got to the point where you know, kind of with the the course, for example. A lot of people are just asking me like, hey, like, do you sell any courses? Like, it's almost, it gets to the point where people kind of hand their wallet to you and say, sell me something. You've provided me way too much value for free. So right. yeah, my, my goal, my goal is just to provide value, period. Um, but yeah, in, in the Facebook groups, there aren't a lot. I actually, so there actually are, there are a few advisors in there that I've, I've noticed over time. It's just that the, the advisors in there, it, they're, they're, they were a part of that community be, probably before they became an advisor. You know, hmm. I think it's really important that if you are going to try to use any type of Facebook group strategy, only join Facebook groups that you would join if you weren't an advisor, right? You're like, oh, like I'm a single mom with you know three kids. Like, oh, I found a group for a single mom with three kids. You're not going to join that group because, oh, I want to work with moms with three kids. Like, yeah, just just join groups because you are already you already align with the philosophies of that tribe. Provide value and never mention what you do. It's it's so funny. Like I but, like don't say that you're a financial advisor unless somebody asks you. But I, but I think this the, sort of the striking thing that does come with this is, you know, you 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 are showing up in a community with people who have billions of dollars, right? Right. I mean, not knocking, just like that's that's the point. Like, you know, the it, it's it's when you find the intersection of a thing you would have wanted to you know, join or be involved with or have or have some interaction with, anyways, and at least some subset of the people who are there do have the financial wherewithal to pay you you know, for, for your advice services, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people in some of the fire communities that also have, you know, negative net worth and dream of the kinds of things that you're talking about, <laughs> right? Because right? yeah, certain know. levels of phi, there's like fat phi, there's lean phi, there's regular phi, there's coast phi, barista yep. phi. Yeah, there's like all sorts of kind of levels. So, you know, just recognizing like, you do have to do this in the context of a community that has at least a subset of people that might be able to pay you for your services and what you do. But well, yeah, but but when you do show up there, like, and there's financial wherewithal and you're involved in the community, as as you you've sort of shown, like, then business development opportunities start coming. Well, what's interesting though is that the groups you're part of don't necessarily have to be like your your ideal you know family to work with. I, I've uh, what happens a lot. So there are people in that group who are not you know, do not want to work with an advisor and like not ready to, but they said, Hey, like, I realize you know a lot about finances and like my mom's about to retire. Yeah. Right? So like in every community, every community of people, whether you have money or not, or high income or low income, you know, people who need, uh, and that's part of the education is they know people who are like at that level that are about to retire and need, need financial planning. But right. my goal is that, that, uh, that we understand that like financial planning isn't just distribution strategies. Like the benefits of creating a tax efficient accumulation strategy is is massive and again going beyond investments like yeah i i don't i'm not i'm not pushing it as an advisor but i i'm really sharing a lot of financial education to make families realize that 
financial planning starts yesterday at, at whatever whatever you know age or asset size you're at. And so just share with us a little bit more, just how does sharing messages in a Facebook community turn into, I think you had said four to five prospects per week. Right. Just how does that actually show up and turn into business? So like, how do those, like what happens for them to reach out? Yeah. Or like, what are you doing? So that eventually at some point they realize that maybe they should reach out. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny. Like one of my other kind of, kind of measures of success as an advisor is how many sentences can I end with a question mark rather than a period? And in Facebook groups, the, the, the way this has happened is, let, let's share another example. So let's say somebody in the Facebook group says, hey, should I, you know, I have 22 years of my mortgage left. Like, should I pay off my mortgage fast or like invest the rest? You know, that very traditional yep. debate of investor pay off the debt. And most people in the group, again, they've only learned the dogmatic one size fits all approaches from other media sources that says like, oh, like I'm a, I'm a Dave Ramsey guy, like pay it off or, you know, or, right. or like, oh, I understand like, you know, oh, investments always make 12%. So you should, you know, that's not advice in our real life, by the way, right. on, the, on the podcast. But what happens is there's a lot of like back and forth of this is it's everybody's saying what they would do, right? Everybody's saying, oh, well, this is what I would do. This is what I would do. This is what you should do. This is what you should do. And I go in there and say, there are both rational and reasonable ways to think about debt repayment, right? And I, I kind of do the thing. I kind of like have everybody like, let's sit back a little bit and like, Learn that like there are, yeah, there are both rational and reasonable sides of every financial decision. So I just I list out a few of the things to consider, and a lot of times the thing is none of it's advice. I never even say like, and this is why you should do this. I just lay right. out like the pros and cons of different opportunities from what I know, and then what that does is that helps them ask better questions about what makes sense for them. So my my education is actually not to tell them what to do, but to make them ask better questions of themselves. So right. by doing that. And I, I think that's where people come to the realization of like, oh, wait, maybe, maybe all this one size fits all advice, like in other parts, not just the debt part of like, maybe, maybe what I've heard recently on like Roth conversions and like how much I should have in each tax location isn't one size fits all either. And, you know, who do I know who could possibly help me figure that out on a personal level? And they go, you know, and, he, and you, I'm sure I'm probably one of the only advisors that some of these you know, members of communities know, or at least trust. But I guess I'm sorry, like, how at the end of the day, do they know you're an advisor and, and, and reach out, right? I, I just like, you know, there, there's, you know, I've been in plenty of Facebook communities over the time and, 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 and seen some people who offer helpful advice, but I usually don't DM them and ask them if I can give them my life savings. Like, they're... <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> the way it happens is, so these are DIY investors who, you know, earlier I was talking about, like, they're the types of people who do lots of research. What they, what they do is, Hey, this guy's providing a lot of value. He seems to know a lot about what he's talking about. So they just start Googling me, right? So, so you just have to be find you just have to be findable yeah, enough yeah, that eventually yeah. they go down the rabbit hole because you are working with people who are very research rabbit hole inclined. Right. And that's thing. It's like, yeah, going back to what I said, like I don't tell people. So this is a big thing too. I think that this is really, this is not a marketing tool, but this is just, you know, by giving it away. When when members of the community ask the question, hey, I'm looking for a financial planner, either for myself or my family member, does anybody have recommendations? An advisor on LinkedIn or advisor on Facebook is typically going to say, I can help you send me a DM. Right. Every time somebody asks to find an advisor, I say, hey, like, you know, 
you know, I, I think, you know, if you're looking for somebody, you know, like if you're looking for a fee only advisor, like, you know, I, you know, I suggest searching on XY planning network and, you know, Garrett financial planning network. So I, I just provide resources to go find an advisor without saying, you know, that I'm one. And yeah. what's, what's really interesting though, this is not my strategy at all, but what's funny is a lot of, a lot of times that I've, I've suggested like places to find advisors, they, 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 they go, Oh, wow. Thank you so much. That was helpful. They click on my profile and do a little digging and they're like, wait, you're a financial planner. And you didn't say like, you didn't even mention yourself. Like you're the type of financial planner I want to work with. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of like the back, the backwards approach, but again, but that's, you know, I'm not doing that as a strategy. I'm just doing that because that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And it ends up, it, again, giving, it just giving, also giving, happens giving, to work. Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah. Just giving it all away just yeah. happens to like provide exactly what you need in the long run. So what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business over the past few years? That five-year goals become one-year goals. <laughs> and I, I think- Because it, because it's grown so much faster than you'd, than you'd expected in, in having your revenue ramp up? Well, I, I think just, uh, I'm realizing this every day, every week that you know, they say that the days go by slow, right? And the weeks go by fast or the years go yeah. by super fast. When I was, ta- I was talking to a lot of, again, I think that, that the power of networking is so important, especially in this industry. And there's so many people who are willing, again, to give it all away to other advisors without thinking about competition. I reached out to financial planners saying, hey, I'm thinking about launching my, like, launching my own firm maybe in like the next you know, year or two, right? And then you know, four months later, I launched my firm. <laughs> right. And then I go, okay, well, you know, you, you hear about the benchmarks of like, okay, like, you know, it typically takes maybe three years to become profitable in your business. Right. So within, within three months of launching my business, I made more revenue than I had made, you know, kind of like, you know, in my previous careers, like in a whole year, I was like, well, that happened fast. Right. And again, mm-hmm. it's, I, I think that I, part of it, it was like, I wasn't actually being realistic with myself. I think a big part of that was certainly like imposter syndrome of, for example, yeah. like I had, to, I had to have, uh, two years of living expenses saved up before I launched my business. Right. And now that, that money is now back into my state. Like, <laughs> like I just like, yep. okay, like I didn't, but I mean, you know, I'm very much like fundamental risk management. Like you, you take care of those things first. So yep. I just, I didn't realize like, I don't know. I, it's definitely, this is something I can't take for granted. Like I have to have gratitude and like understand like this truly is like privilege, not just Yes, a lot of hard work went into it, but a lot of things, you know, Facebook existed, right? Like a lot of, yeah. a lot of what drove, drove the demand for my, my services were things that other people provided. Like I didn't do, I didn't do any of this stuff myself, like a big shout out again to, so Joe Burkhofer. So I had a, I had a, a meeting with him literally three years ago saying, I really love personal finance. You know, I was working as a professional musician at the point and he said, Hey, well, why don't you just drink out of the fire hose and do the CFP education program, right? For, you know, so so three years later, I own my own firm at, at deliberate capacity, serving exactly who I want to serve and controlling my time. Like that happened in three years. And that makes me now understand that, like, it almost makes me think that, hey, I, I think a lot of people have the capacity to like literally have a different career, a full career every five years. And that, th- that, that things happen much faster, especially if you have the intentionality and the drive to get it done. Like you mm-hmm. just, you just, just go, just do it. <laughs> And I, I'm sure a lot of this comes from, I listen to a lot of like productivity and like, you know, mindfulness type of podcast. And mm-hmm. it, it's really, again, those are my, those are my ways of understanding that fine, you know, physical, mental, spiritual, financial, relational health are all related. So now I'm just like, so I, I guess go back to your question. The thing that I've realized is that especially now that revenue is not a driver of what I'm doing, it now opens me up to like, 
like really filling up all those other pies of my life. And thing and 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 thing is now that I've understood this, it's now an opportunity to give to give this all away to other planners and help them along the way. So I, I want to get to a point. My financial independence goal isn't to like to lay down on a hammock all day. It's to it's to provide value to as many people as possible without expecting something in return. So what was the low point for you on this journey? I think the low point on the journey was actually the ten years leading up to this point, and it's really the I, I very much have you know Jocko Willink's book like Extreme Ownership. I very much have a philosophy of extreme ownership of not just you know doing my job, but kind of doing the job of others around me. If I feel like I, I'm just always driven to, you know, I'm the type of person who's like you know 30 minutes early to a meeting every time. Like I just, I'm sure a lot of that comes into like anxiety and like a lot of you know probably mental health stuff certainly. But I think that the 10 years of anxiety that went along with that drive. So I, I've been speaking with somebody recently who talks about how important it is to have. So there's like kind of like a Goldilocks of how much stress you need in your life to get things done or to grow. <laughs> thing is, if you don't have enough stress, right, you end up just kind of like doing the same thing over and over again, like probably either burning out or just being comfortable phoning it in. And then there's a certain level of stress that's too much and really can break you, right? right. I was very much like, so if that's like a one to 10, like I've been at like a, you know, an eight and a half to nine in anxiety and really drive and intentionality to keep like bettering myself for the last 10 years. And so now like this is the first opportunity I feel like. So I'm I my last financial planning meeting uh, of the year is this Saturday. I have 8 weeks with no financial, you know, no financial planning, you know, through December. Before the last 10 years, I've never taken off more than 3 days of work ever. And those like since graduating college, I've never taken off more than 3 days. And those 3 days I was checking email and like doing all the work before I left on vacation and doing extra work when I got back. And this is my right. first opportunity to see like maybe you can do this differently now while you're while you're grossing at a pace of 140,000 of revenue and can net 130 right. of it and as a household I've never made more than $80,000 and and as you know and, and 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 averaging 10 hours a week so i mean you 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 could dial up the lever and take on more clients and drive up more revenue if you want to it sounds like right. just the whole point takeaway yeah, is like yeah four plans 300,000 but the thing is yeah like that's not that that doesn't fulfill me as much as right. as much as spending time giving more away. So, what do you know now that you wish you'd known three or four years ago when you were starting down this path into the advisor world? What what have you learned? You could go back and tell you from a couple Ooh. of years ago. I probably wouldn't because I think I I needed exactly what I got, and that really that um, I, I think something that so again Joe Burkhoffer, who's been an amazing mentor of mine, especially at like like my last firm, like. He really helped me, like not just be a fly on the wall as an advisor. I didn't know what an IRA was starting off. Like he, like he let me in like every client meeting. Like gave me opportunities that I thought like were too much for me. But I think going back then, the one thing that he taught me that I, I think I need to continuously tell myself, and new planners need to tell themselves is like, don't feel like, or don't be worried about not knowing the answer to everything. And another thing too is that the clients that are working with you, the reason they're working with you is because they don't know. So I, I think the imposter syndrome thing, you know, having that anxiety of like going into a meeting and saying, what could they possibly ask? I'm like, I'm scared they're going to ask a question I don't know the answer to. So I would have just been even more on myself of saying like, hey, like, you know, you've done your homework. Like you've done what, you know, you, 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 you've prepared as much as you possibly could. Like just, you know, you know all the anxiety yeah, built up to the meeting. And once the meeting started, it was always okay. Yeah, so I think there. I would just be that cheerleader on the side that would say, you know, in ter- especially in terms of anxiety to say, Hey, like you're going to come out of this alive <laughs> at the end of this, and and yeah. like nobody's going to, you know, 
I think maybe I need some of that, what Tim Ferriss calls like fear setting, right? Like what is literally the worst thing that can happen, right? And, and through, through building my, you know, through building a, from going from being a professional musician to owning a firm and being at, at capacity in three years, the worst that can happen is I start from ground up and I feel like I can do it again. So I think I would tell myself that like, don't worry about failing because that, that might be the best thing or making a big shift or a big pivot in your life might be the best thing for you and your family. So any other advice you would give to newer advisors looking to come in the industry or in particular if they're looking at going the, the advice only route? Yes. So here's really that structure again is number one, define. So pretend that you, you own your firm. Somebody walks through the door of your, your firm, whether it's virtual or not, somebody can walk through the door. You need to know exactly who they are coming through the door. So you need to figure out exactly who you want to serve. Then figure out, you know, what do they need? How are you going to provide value to that family that came through the door? Whether it's a, you know, a single, a single parent with kids or, you know, an elderly couple who are super scared about, you know, these things they hear about called RMDs, like like, not, not just, not just put how much money they have or like, you know, married or how much money they have or how much is, you know, how much income they have, but also like describe to yourself, like how do, like, how do they think about money? Like, what are their fears? Like what, what brings them joy? Like, so you, I, I think like you really have to define who you want to serve. This is not just for launching a firm, but like before you even like, you know, become like go, e- even when you're interviewing for a firm, say, does the person I want to serve, serve align with this practice? And if it doesn't, do you think I could introduce this practice to that type of family? And then the second question, yeah. So the first is define who you want to serve. Second is define how you're going to provide value as much as possible. And then only then figure out if the compensation aligns with what you want to do. Oh, and the last, the last piece of advice is find opportunities to give it all away. Find an opportunity to give, give what you know away. Because as you know, there are a lot of families who are not being served. Not necessarily because they, 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 a lot of them just don't know that they could be served like the way you know, financial planners can truly serve them. So as, as we wrap up, this is a podcast around success. And one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people. So you've, you've alluded to this a couple of times throughout the discussion, just getting the, the business to a place that's, that's successful for you from a financial perspective. But can you share a little more of just how do you define success for yourself at this mm-hmm. point? So I mentioned a little bit before. So success to me is about how much can I give away without expecting something in return. In terms of in terms of like working with clients one on one, this is kind of a so the, the the two parts two parts to this are, you know how again how many how many sentences can I end with a question mark rather than a period? That's changed the way I've thought about like really having conversations with families. Let's see if I can remember the last one now. Um, the oh it's a funny one so. If if my if my throat is dry after a meeting, right? I know that I can improve there, right? Because that means I talk <laughs> too much. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, and so for example, you know, after this podcast interview, maybe I talk too much, right? My throat's you know getting scratchy. But uh, I, I, I'd say that the final thing, success to me, really really create boundaries that don't just work for the people that you're serving. You have to create boundaries that that really help you as well. So quick thing about my firm is that I don't have my phone number, like. I, I have a business phone number, but fa- um, the families I, der- my, I serve don't call me. I do all my communication is email and video calls, right? And some people say, "Well, like that's rude." Like, I mean, what if your what if your clients want to reach out to you, like, and can't you know can't get a hold of you quickly? And what I decide is like, I'm just I want to create an expectation. You know, I want to create a boundary that no communication that in my business needs to be solved within 48 hours. 
And again, that that very much aligns now with saying, hey, like if if I were managing investments, would I be able to do have that boundary? Probably not, right? Right. I'd have to like I have to you know make that trade today if they want me to make that trade today. So yeah, like create boundaries. So build your business up uh, around healthy boundaries, and especially when you're creating something that doesn't exist yet, like don't create like like just try to get away from the limiting beliefs of what won't work. Create exactly what you want. Like go top down rather than bottom up when you're thinking about what you want to do in life. I love that message. I think it, it speaks well just to the journey you've had and the the incredibly fast path you've had, as you said, like five, five year plans become Drinking one year plans hose. very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cody, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.